0: Welcome to episode 95, Lifting Black Voices, Therapy, Trust, and Racial Trauma, featuring Lashonda Sugg, LPC, Dr. Tiffany Creighton, LPCS, and LJ Lumpkin, LMFT. For more information about the free CE credit associated with this episode, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com. By Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Thank you for tuning in and spending time today to listen more about what it means to be Black in America and how this can impact the experience of psychotherapy. In order for us to be anti-racist and to best support our peers and our clients that are Black and African-American, we need to be furthering these conversations. So thank you for joining us in this today. I'm honored to be sharing time today with three really wonderful and talented clinicians. In no particular order, I would like to introduce to you LaShonda Sugg. She is a certified trauma-responsive therapist, consultant, and the founder of Labors of Love Counseling and Consulting in Cincinnati, Ohio, and she has a trauma specialty with a focus in multi-generational families. We also have joining us Dr. Tiffany Creighton. She's a licensed professional counselor in the states of Virginia, Texas, and Oklahoma, and she has specializations in working with those who have experienced trauma, trauma, intimate partner violence, um, and a myriad of other concerns, and she also works with LGBTQ+. And I also want to introduce LJ Lumpkin. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist that practices outside of Los Angeles. He's worked in a wide array of mental health levels of care and has a specialization in multicultural therapy, anxiety, and trauma treatment. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today for what is a very important and also a very hard conversation. We are honored to hear from you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, Lashonda, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and about your work? Um, yeah. So I'm a trauma specialist and I really enjoy working with multi-generational
1: families because we sweep stuff under the rug, right? We we often aren't given the opportunity to deal with the things that happen in our families. So I work with families to help work through those things. I do work with couples and individuals as well, but the main point is, how do we understand that what we've experienced in life impacts our day to day? And how do we work through those
0: things to get healing? Wonderful. Thank you for joining us. And Dr. Creighton, how about you?
2: Yes, I am a licensed professional counselor and I work with, um, I say, from the womb to the tomb for the most part. There there's, doesn't seem to be a population that I won't venture out to help. So my area of focus is mainly trauma and helping people rediscover themselves and um, address the pain that has occurred in their lives.
0: Thank you for joining us. And how about you, LJ?
3: Um, So I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and uh, I specialize in anxiety disorders and trauma. Uh, I started out with schizophrenia, severe mental illness um, and have kind of worked my way back from where does it usually stem from? I like to help my clients understand the cycle of life and how these uh, continuous microaggressions affect us um, if we're not processing them. And um, I do a lot of uh, mindfulness practices, uh, breathing, meditation to understand the trauma and work through it rather than avoid.
0: Wonderful. Um, I'm so appreciative of the three of you for spending this time with us. Um, So why don't we just dive right in? Um, So the purpose of this conversation is to start talking and shed some light on the impact of racism in mental health treatment and the things that clinicians need to be aware of. And obviously, we can only just barely scratch the surface. But let's let's start it here. So I want to share some statistics with our listeners. When we look at the um, number of of Black and African-American people in our country, depending on what you look at, roughly 12 to 13% of Americans um, identify as Black or African-American. That said, when we look at the professions, when we look at uh, those who are psychologists, roughly about 5% of psychologists are black or African American, Um, social workers, roughly 20 or 21% are black or African American. So there is more of a match in that particular profession. But in mental health treatment in general, it's certainly not uncommon for you to have a a non minority clinician working alongside um, a person of color, and the importance of bringing um, cultural awareness, cultural humility into the therapy room. Um, in terms of the frequency with which Black and African American people seek mental health treatment, um, depending on which particular demographic you're looking at, in general, white people, um, those are non-Hispanic, excuse me, non-Hispanic white adults tend to seek therapeutic treatment roughly two times as much as their black or African American peers, particularly for for women. So those who identify as female um, white women are about twice as likely than their black and African American female identifying peers. Um, Overall, we see collectively that um, men are also, less likely to pursue therapy, uh, Black men are. And additionally, when asked in a Centers for Disease Control Summary Health Statistics National Health interview from 2017 um, about the endorsement of sadness, 10.3% of non-Hispanic Black respondents said that they had feelings of sadness, hopelessness, worthlessness, or that everything is an effort all or most of the time, whereas only 6.1% of non-Hispanic White respondents endorsed those same characteristics. So we see right there, just in that one question alone, that there's a higher rate of reported um, helplessness and hopelessness among among Black um, adult respondents. So we can obviously keep talking about a lot of different statistics, but I want to set the tone right here that clearly we have some problems, a lot of problems. Um, and I want to invite any of you to chime in how you hear those statistics, what they mean to you as a practitioner and as a person of color. And please sh- share with me.
2: Well, I would have to say that I'm I'm definitely not surprised by the statistics because um, growing up in an African-American um, family, it was taboo to talk about um, any pain you were experiencing, any ineptness. Um, you just didn't share things, your business, if you will, with anyone outside of the family. And if something was happening, um, you were pretty much silenced, you know. But in in my family, I was around adults. I was the only child, and. I remember my cousins or just different family members coming to me and I'm the child and they're asking me, what, what do I think about, you know, certain situations? And I didn't have the life experience to even articulate what I thought they should do. Um, But I was always taught, if you don't know, go find it in a book. And so that was pretty much what I did. And that was kind of how I embarked upon going into the field of counseling because I would see those that are hurting around me and not having the resources, not having the access because it was frowned upon to um, discuss or have a conversation about incest or um, about abuse of of any any form or fashion. And so I, I think First, let's give ourselves the permission to um, to talk about it, and and again to address it. So, you know, mental health is not just you don't just go to mental for a mental health professional because you have a problem, you know. And I think that's kind of what we tend to do: we wait and until things kind of manifest before we begin to talk about it.
1: No, you know, I, I can um, a lot of similar similarities in our story. You know, no one ever talked about going to therapy. You went to church. Look, you need Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got Jesus. That's all you need. Um, mm-hmm. The interesting thing is I've been sitting with kind of my own journey into therapy as a participant um, and eventually as a clinician is I think about the history of our people, of black people in this country. And I began to truly understand Why? I had a lot of anger and animosity that healing wasn't what felt like healing wasn't a priority in the black community. You know, like you were saying, Tiffany, you know, we don't talk about these things. But when I began to think about, you know, our 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 history in this country, we had to suppress our pain. You showing your pain meant that someone could either use it against you. You know, I thought about how many women had to stifle their tears as their husbands were murdered in front of them. Their sisters were brutally raped. Their children were taken and stolen. So even in our own DNA, in our survival, you know, when we talk epigenetics, like holding it in is what we do and how we have survived in this country. And, and I think when we start talking about the disparities and who seeks counsel, who seeks therapy, that we have to understand that it is an untrustworthy system and instead, uh, because I think sometimes these statistics get twisted to then say, see, they don't want help. See, they don't, they don't want to participate. And I think I'm urging people to look at it from a system perspective. It is an untrustworthy system. It has been used to manipulate. Um I I really I what's it called drapedomania? I sorry, I don't remember the word, but they legitimately had a word. That they used to pseudo diagnose slaves who tried to run away. They were mentally ill for trying to escape slavery. Listen to that. Like a system predicated on oh, if you're trying to escape enslavement and rape and murder and the use of your body for profit that you will not be able to benefit from, you're ill. This is the foundation of what we do, y'all, right? So, of course, we as a people are not running. To say, hey, let me bring my problems to you, that the system pathologizes, you know. And so as I began to think about that, I'm like, I get why we don't <laughs> I get why it took me so long, you know, to engage in this process and and go coming into it, you know, that's why I love what we're doing and I appreciate all of you because we have to really start saying, How do we change the system?
3: Yeah, so much came up for me when you were saying that that um the, I think I'm looking back at my own experience when I started therapy at 13, where it wasn't a choice, it was court mandated and that experience, you know, luckily, I had a very good clinician, a very seasoned clinician that could look at it as a trauma experience versus, um, so, you know, that this kid is just not caring about the problems or isn't taking therapy seriously um, and was able to work with me and um, But there was this feeling even now to talk about my own experience, my feelings that when is this going to be used against me? Um, How is this going to be manipulated to put me in a box or say that, um, you know, I am I am a statistic of, you know, you know, black America. This is this anger that this uh, male experiences. This is just how all black men are. Um, I can even think back to studying psychology um, through my undergrad and into my master's program that usually I had to be the voice for um, all black people in that moment every day. Um, And how scary that is because you know that we all have differences. (laughs) We're all unique Um, and still, that pressure is put in every format to have to explain and articulate um, what you're feeling on a day to day basis when you go outside and don't feel that people are, are willing to listen or willing to hear um, what you experience on a regular basis. Um, And that's even now that is a difficult thing to swallow when as therapists, as clinicians, we're supposed to be able to create a non-judgmental environment um, for our clients to come in and feel safe that they can express themselves.
1: that's so good. <clears throat> it may I thought about that. I how many young black children are court mandated or put into a day treatment or residential program? Uh, And they do not have good experiences. But it also made me think about um, how sometimes uh, therapy becomes this place to further deepen the internalized racism that black people are experiencing and people of color. So if you have a clinician who is not culturally humble, And they are providing this space based on their own implicit biases. And you have a client of color, a black client that comes in and they are have their own internalized racism. Those things start feeding off of each other. And then, you know, it further pathologizes what that person is experiencing because the clinician, if they are not again, culturally humble and equipped just feeds into that narrative. And then the, the the response is, well, how do we distance ourselves from that narrative? And it's a, it's a discovery that I've made over the last, really, I can be honest, like a week ago (laughs) Uh, in um, um, a protest, uh, a rally, if you will. And I was in a, a community, a black community, um what we would call the hood, right? Now it's in Cincinnati where I live, but I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, born and raised. And this was very similar to my community. And I began to understand that the narrative I was given growing up was get out and stay out. No one really taught me that the narrative around black people was wrong. I was taught to distance myself from that narrative. So if black people are you go get your education. If black people are ghetto, this is how you behave. If black people live in you go to the suburb. And so I am just now being able to fully sit with my own internalized race up a person, as a mother, as a partner, as a business owner, as a clinician. And then I realized, no, I don't need to distance myself from that narrative. I need to reinsert and then I need to change it. Because what frequently happens is that 8% of psychologists or that 20-some percent of uh, social workers, we become the exception to the rule. People can point to us and say, no, see, not all Black people, but, right? And and sometimes we can get caught up in the, I'm different. No, I am the same. Don't change your perception of me. Change your perception about this entire group of people that you've been socialized to believe are less than. And if clinicians are not doing their own work, whether they're clinicians of color or not, then we can just reinforce the narrative that we've all been given. And that doesn't benefit anyone. And so I just think that's super important as we're having this conversation.
0: LaShonda, you brought something up, and I know it's something that's very close to your heart, which is the difference between cultural competence and cultural humility. Can you please speak more to that? And I also invite the other two of you also to comment on that, and what that means for you, not just a textbook definition, but what that means in practice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I hear the term cultural competence a lot. And it for me, uh, it signals an arrival point, I can take a couple trainings, uh, get my continuing education, I can check a couple boxes off, bam, I'm competent. Right. And people can get complacent in their competency because when you're competent, you know, I, I don't really have to try harder. I know this. You cannot truly become competent in an experience that you not just haven't had, but won't have. And since a lot of white people, period, but clinicians can't sit in our skin, then this competence is not going to be something you achieve. However, cultural humility allows you to sit in a space to say there's so much I don't know. And that you can become a learner. Now, there's a difference between being a learner and expecting black people, indigenous people, people of color, LGBTQ community, women, marginalized communities to teach you. But when you are a learner, you realize you have the opportunity to learn in every aspect of life all day, every day. You become an observer instead of a critiquer. You know, you become a person who leans in with compassion and curiosity instead of judgment and shame. That's the difference. If you're competent, then I know what I'm talking about and I'm going to tell you. But when you're humble, you sit and you create a therapeutic space where a person can be them full, their, their full selves. And so that's the biggest difference. So. If you're out there looking for your next cultural competency training and you're ready to check it off, I my my suggestion is how do you even lean into that with humility? So for me, that's that's what it means for me. Um,
2: Lashonda, I love exactly what you're saying because you're you're expressing how you build a bridge to someone else's lived experience. And I thought all these years, that is what we were taught as clinicians, were to sit in the other person's experience no matter what shade no matter what color i'm going to meet you where you are and so i had to sit as as you explained sit in my own pain to figure out what i need to be as an african-american just a clinician you know period am i fully present and that's what i challenge our our white sisters and brothers to do it's to be fully present and, and don't feel that that person speaks for our race as a whole. They're speaking from their experience, from their journey. And I, I think that's the start.
3: So for me, everything that's been said, the, the curiosity piece um, is so huge. I mean, the, the whole study of psychology is why do people do what they do? And if we can stay in that child's mind, the curiosity of what is going on rather than the judgment. Um, It can be a challenge. And I know for some clinicians that might be feeling burnt out, um, compassion fatigue, Um, going that extra mile can be a burden in the beginning, but really if we can get back to that base of, okay, this is what we, this is what we signed up for. This is what we got into this work to do. Um, and it can be this excitement that's really in the room versus, um, that, oh, I, you know, I'm getting another client where I have to be emotionally sensitive to their culture. And cause I've heard that before, um, where it's, it's almost like this extra thing when really that's the base of what we're supposed to be doing is really sitting in that room and experiencing what is happening. Um, that's why I love Gestalt-type therapy because when we can feel it viscerally, and I, I truly believe that's what we're we're going through right now as a culture and society is we've had enough time away from everyone else. And now, you know, you can't turn away from a eight minute video. You can't turn away from the brutality that's happening and you have to really experience and feel it, whatever your political views are, whatever, you know, anything else you're training, but you have to experience that feeling. And so that's, what's starting to connect us, but we have to be able to talk about it, normalize that as well.
1: And I think that's the scariest part. People who aren't used to feeling. So it's almost like, what is that? Like, oh, my God. And it creates this dissonance from the narrative you've been living and what's happening in your body. And people then disconnect from their bodies and go to the head space. Right. So I think, you know, which I'm sure you each will test, like trauma is body work. You know, it it is all in the body and we want to bring it to a head thing. It's not a head thing. It is a body thing. And that is where a lot of the discomfort and tension is happening. You know, Black people in this country have been feeling things in their bodies since we were, since we arrived, all right, since we were forcibly brought here. And so just the fact that people have been able to distance themselves from that visceral experience is in and of itself a privilege. I've also found that this, you know, this has been over the last several weeks, especially, one of the foundations that I found to be a common denominator amongst many white people that I talked to about race and racism, the system has been created to ensure that white people are good people. Like that is the very crux of white supremacy. They are good people. I see so many people holding fist gripped to this notion of I am a good person that it is blinding them to the system. And, and so as clinicians, you know, when Tiffany is talking about creating that bridge and being fully present, I think where that can get very difficult for white clinicians is fully present means the system has not been good to this client. I am a part of that system. If I'm a part of that system, you're saying I'm not a white person, disconnect, disconnect, burn the bridge, not fully present. Wait a minute, but what if? But have you considered? And we go back to the headspace of justification, right? So, the invitation that I've been inviting white people to is get in your body and sit with it. Like, I get it. And anytime you find yourself coming back to, but I, it ain't about you, the system. Right. We like to, it, having these individualized conversations when we're talking about a systemic problem gets more and more frustrating with me on a daily basis. And so what I've seen and what's been reported to me by clients who come to me and even some of my own experiences is black people are coming with a systemic issue. They're saying this is how I'm being treated at work. This is what happened when I'm in this community. This is how police engage with me. This is who follows me around the store. And people who are not aware of how the system impacts go to the eye conversation. Well, did you consider changing this? It's not an eye conversation. So clinicians who are listening, being able to take this micro focus on altering the behaviors of black people or people of color, which is a microaggression and saying, what system is at play here when I am listening to my client, Tommy, and that requires a fully presentness that allows you to step out of yourself, your, but I would never, I have never, I've never called it. Getting rid of all of that and being fully present with the system is, is really the only way or one of the foundational ways that these things are going to change.
0: I can see both of your expressions. Tiffany, LJ, do you have anything you want to say in addition to what LaShonda just shared?
2: I think sometimes, um, our white sisters and brothers feel that they have to apologize for what happened over 400 years ago. And that's not what we're seeking at all. And so I I really love what LaShonda just said, you know, um, we want them to take responsibility for their part to help change the system now. You know, unfortunately, there's no way that we can go back. And that's that's history. That is history. And 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 as she stated, they try to distance themselves and say, well, it's not me. I did. I'm not um, doing that. You know, I embrace all and and. But what can you do to to help build that bridge? What, What can you do to be there in the moment when someone comes to you and says that I'm being treated differently at work because of the color of my skin? How can you sit there with them in that moment just as a human being? And that's all that's being expressed. See us as a human being, which is not what we have been seeing before. I had a very painful experience when I earned my doctorate and I was excited like that is I'm part of the one percent, you know, and and I work in a field of education. I I have served in the field of education for 17 years and my Anglo-Saxon counterparts didn't celebrate that with me. I remember having a conversation um, with someone that was my lead, the lead counselor. And she said, considering everything that you're going through, don't you think you should stop right now? Don't you think like she was trying to impede my ability to attain a personal goal? I didn't do that for the letters behind my name. I did that because that's what I promised myself I would become when I was a child, because so many people said I wouldn't be able to do it. You know, only if you were white, you would be able to attain this degree you would you would be the one you if you were white, you would be able to be a part of the one percent well i'm I'm stubborn so I'm gonna show you that I can and so when I attained it, one thing that I was taught in my family is to be humble. we don't stick our chest out we don't you know, brag about our abilities, you allow your abilities to show for themselves. So I didn't announce it. Actually, one of my friends um, that I work with, one of my colleagues, whom was a white woman, she made the announcement. And for some reason, I felt ashamed of my accomplishment. And those around me made me feel so ashamed that I almost thought I did not write a dissertation. That in itself is trauma because you're not seeing me. You're not seeing my ability to achieve my intellectual ability. And as old as I am now, I still struggle with that.
1: I see you, girl. Just wanted to say it. I celebrate (laughs) you. But how real is that? But even as you were talking, like it just takes me back to even just movies, so fictionalized representations of time post slavery, but Jim Crow and segregation and and how because again, white supremacy simply means white people are supreme. They are better than. And so to buck a system and to stand tall in who you are goes against the system that says ah uh 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 And so for our own safety and protection, we have been taught and culturalized and socialized to downplay our accomplishments as not to disrupt the system. Because that could have meant death. Like, I guess part of it, what I want people to understand is this is not fragile, ego. Individualized things we're talking about. We're talking about an entire system that says, Oh, you think you will come and literally burn down your house? Oh, you think you've accomplished something? We will literally come and take your life. That's a system at work. And part of that system allows people in their interpersonal nature to go, Well, I mean, on one hand, what's the big deal, right? On the other hand, Black people don't have it that bad. I I work with a Black doctor. I mean, we have to look at how that dissonance, that rationalizations that will come up to justify the system. And the biggest part that I think makes it so complicated is when you're a direct benefactor of the system, you don't want to disrupt it either, right? And and when I sit in my dominant identities, ones that are not marginalized, I am able-bodied. English is my first language. I am heterosexual, cisgendered, and most would consider me a Christian. When I sit in those identities, then I sit and have the thought, yeah, when someone tries to take something away from me, I don't like it. Like, hold on, wait, I didn't choose this. I can't help it. Like, You know, I work hard. All of the arguments that I hear coming from white people, I get it because I can do that in other of my identities. However... I realize I can't. I'm not asking anybody to do what I am not also doing in other identities that I hold. There is a system at play that I benefit from on a regular basis in many areas. But that system needs to be disrupted just like the system of racism because it is literally still killing people every single day. Um, and that's real, but doctor, I see you. Thank you. I just want you to know that. (laughs) Thank you.
2: (laughs) Wow. The, the
3: fears, the fear of success. I mean, that's, it's so huge because I mean, we've, we've had that, like, if you're a black millionaire, if you're, you know, making money, if you're, if you're rising to the top, you're made an example of you're lynched, you're burned, you know, your finances are attacked, um your character's attacked. Um for me, that was it. saying that I had a master's degree um that I had gotten to that level. I had to systematically practice it in my mind. Like, yes, I have a master's degree. I have this, I have accomplished this. I am an expert in this area. I have done the work to achieve this um, because the uh, my own mindset would go back into I didn't deserve it. Um, I don't fit the, the characteristics. I remember my econ class where they said black males are not going to make as much as a white male will with the same degree, you're going to have to, you know, work a lot harder in this way. Um, and, and going back to what you were speaking to LaShonda is the, you know, acknowledging our privileges. If we all can do that as human beings, because we all have certain privileges in some way, I am a, a male. I, you know, I, I am healthy. I, you know, I was an athlete in college, so I did get some standards of, you know, positive treatment. Um, those things, if I can look at that and look at how other people don't have them, removing myself from it where I don't feel as attacked, because I think when we say white privilege, it's oh no, you're attacking me, you're saying that I didn't earn what I've done, or you, I haven't accomplished, but that's not what's being said, is that? It, Going back to what's being talked about, the system has been put in place where you have an advantage and people that are in these lower demographics that are suffering, that are dealing with all this brutality, they don't have the chances, they don't have the opportunity to go into a therapist therapist's office. Um, they don't have um, the understanding that like what's the difference between going to a therapist, a psychiatrist, um, a psychologist? Like what is mental health? Because anytime I've had somebody in front of me writing down notes, they're taking notes to give it to a probation officer or to a, you know, uh, child protective services. Um, Those standards, people have not had those opportunities or or interactions with someone who is actually caring for them. It's always been in a threat mode. And so that behavior becomes learned where you're not going to open up and you're not going to be able to shed some of the armor that's been there. Um, And I think that, that's very critical. It's not that we're wanting to be defensive. It's that we have had to be defensive. We've been trained to be defensive and it's been on for so long. You forget that that's an armor.
0: Um, When I talked individually with all three of you, the common theme, the primary word that kept coming up was trauma. I want to invite you to speak about um, your perspective on the trauma of racism and its impact in the therapy room. Um, because w- without a doubt, that was a word that kept coming up as we talked about this discussion, trauma, dissociation, and kind of cutting oneself off. And you've all three already talked about different ways basically that you had this split with your, within yourselves in a certain um, in having certain privileges and also in attainment of having difficulty acknowledging I did this great thing, but now i'm I'm afraid of what that what that signifies. Um, so please, Talk to me, tell me, tell me how you see it and and how all of these pieces fit together with race and and trauma and in the therapy room, someone sitting on our couch.
1: When I talk about trauma, I, I try to help people understand that trauma isn't an event or a series of events, but it is the worldviews, the beliefs and the behaviors that result from those events or series of events. So when people are coming to the therapy space and they have experienced trauma, especially racialized trauma if you don't understand that we're not honing in on a particular event or thing that happened but what is literally alive on our nervous systems when we come into that space then a, a clinician is not going to be able to effectively help that person um deactivate that the activism that happens within their body when They see a light behind their car and automatically they go into fight or freeze or flee, right? When we are not aware of how trauma manifests in the body, then we start to pathologize the responses that people are making. Their, their autonomic nervous system is kicking into gear. And then we're wrapping a narrative around it of delinquency or criminality or why don't you just? So that's the biggest thing for me. Trauma lives in the body. And if people are not equipping themselves with modalities and techniques that help them clinician as well as their client get into their bodies to be able to slow that heart rate, to be able to come to a state of social engagement, if we're talking polyvagal theory, right? If we're constantly creating threat. So that they're in fight, flight, or freeze when they're in the session, then we're just exacerbating the trauma that they came to us with in the first place. So, we, y'all, we can't CBT our way out of trauma. You know, I'm sorry. I don't know if anybody told you, but if that's your primary mode of thinking you are going to be working with someone who experienced trauma, I'm sorry you need more continuing education because we can reframe thoughts when we're actually using the cognitive talk cognitive part of our brain but when it's lodged in your body you can't reframe thoughts stop and none of that so we have to as clinicians equip ourselves to help deal with how trauma is manifesting in the body so that that's my main contribution
3: the way um yeah, what you said was <laughs> profound. Because really, um, one of the, the books that I always refer back to when I'm trying to help other clinicians learn, like, how do you talk about trauma? Uh, Basil van der Kolk's The Body Keeps a Score. Um, that was so eye-opening for me and my personal experiences because I didn't, I didn't think I had trauma. I didn't think I had anxiety or stress. I didn't understand that at all. And when I read it, it was like, oh, this is a panic attack. Like, this is what this is. Now I know this visceral reaction throughout my nervous system. Wow, like, um, you know, the the understanding between the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system, and just, hey, we don't breathe fully. You know, we're in this constant clinched mode, ready to go. And, you know, we're, we're hijacked by our amygdala where it's like, you know, we can't have a full conscious thought. It's just, we are going, we are reacting. And when you've been shown that, okay, you can't run because you're gonna get shot in the back or you can't fight because you're gonna get shot in the chest. Um, so the only thing is to do is to disassociate and freeze and act like we don't care or we have to numb ourselves because there's nothing else that we can do in that moment. Um, and and just being able to understand it and, and articulate it with, with clients so they can normalize that of, this is what, there's not that there's something wrong with me, that this is something that has been programmed over and over again to where now it's just, it's just habit. I just do it. I don't even have to think about it. Uh, I think that's very important for clinicians to have that understanding when they are describing trauma and um, for their own uh, background to, to really take in more information on um, trauma, like trauma research. What it, What are the, best, the fastest techniques that are being put out there where we're, we're actually seeing some evidence uh, where they help.
0: As you've talked about trauma, I want to go back to one of the words that you've all mentioned in different ways in this idea of a microaggression. Can we talk about the damage that can be done by clinicians with these kind of microaggressions Um, When you have a client that's coming in in an activated and traumatized state, or they're already feeling like they need to defend, LJ, you talked about, you know, what it means to be court mandated, who knows what that person is writing down about you, where it's going to go. Um, Tell me about your beliefs, your experiences, the stories you've heard, um, and the mistakes, the damage that has been done by clinicians making statements, you know, I I think uh, LaShonda, you, you talked about it as well, this, but I, or can you basically CBT your way out of it? Well, if you just, then you'll be okay, then the racing stop, the racing heart will stop. I mean, I really look at it as a re-victimization. People
1: are experiencing microaggressions, microaggressions every day, everywhere they go, at work, at school, in the store, But the therapeutic relationship should be sacred, right? There is an expectation when a person comes into the therapeutic relationship of safety. Safety is the foundation of that relationship. So when that relationship is violated through ignorance or microaggressions, it is a re-victimization. It's like a second wound. It is the primary wound of why I'm coming and then it's being stabbed or poked or prodded by a person who is supposed to be helping that wound heal. And so that is why, I mean, they hurt all the time. It's a great YouTube video out there on microaggressions, comparing them to bee stings. I highly recommend you look it up. It's a short video, but it's like so on point. And you got a person who's getting these bee stings every day and we learn how to just swat it away, put some oil on it, don't scratch, don't let it spread, just keep going. But you finally come and settle into a place of rest. I'm going to see my therapist. I'm going to my safe place. And then to to be victimized within that sacred space, it really hurts. And sometimes people don't address it because there is a hierarchy or power differential within the therapeutic relationship as it's practiced. Not as it should be, but as it's practiced. So people come to a therapist with the same mindset they do their doctor. Go in, shut up, take the advice, go home. And so they come looking for us to be the all-knowing, all-powerful person in that relationship. If we're not dismantling that, that power differential, right? if we're not saying we are same as and I am here with you, then it's further injury that happens When the person who is supposed to know, supposed to care and has quote unquote authority is then inflicting pain on that participant. And so that is why it is important. So they won't challenge it because they don't want to disrupt the relationship. I'm still being victimized, but it's better than nothing. Right. Or I I don't want you to look at me differently. I'm trying to defy the narrative that I've been given. There are many reasons why people won't call you out on it. So you have to assume a position of authority to call yourself out. I had a recent experience that was so beautiful. I had had a quick conversation with the person and they had said something that could have been perceived as a microaggression. Y'all, I didn't even catch it. I really didn't. I I didn't catch it. This person sent me an email after that conversation and just said, this is what I said. And it could have been perceived this way. And I'm sorry. And that touched my heart in ways that you just would not understand because what that meant was in that relationship that I hope continues to flourish, I don't have to have my guard up to police that person. They're policing themselves. You know, they are holding themselves accountable Right. Instead of me constantly have to be like, well, did you notice what you said or did you do that? Or this is how it made me feel. And no, they said, hey, I listened to what I said and I realized that that could have been offensive to you. And I'm sorry. That was a healing interaction for me. That is what we should be creating in the therapeutic relationship. Can they come into your space and get a break? Can they get 55 minutes of a break? Can they let the wall down? Can they breathe? Can they relax? Can they be human? Because the narrative is we are not fully human. Pain can feel the same to us. You know, we don't get, we are not fully human. Can can your space be a place where they can be a human? If you're microaggressing and if you are listening to this and you don't even know what that word means, start there. I need you to not only know what the word means, but, but how you do it. And it is
2: your responsibility to police yourself. And it's our responsibility to create an environment of safety. And, and like you said, policing ourselves each day, um, it's common practice for me. More, more pre-COVID, since I don't have very many places to go anymore. But um, at the end of the day, just self-reflect. You know, did I say something that was harmful? You know, could I have said this a different way? you know, be intentional with your approach with your client. I want to share something
0: that that I came across in in the research that I've been doing as part of this conversation. Um, In a qualitative research study by Doris Chang and Patricia Yoon published in 2011. um, They talked with 23 ethnic minority clients that were interviewed to assess perceptions of race in the recent therapy with a white therapist. So we're looking at about two dozen people of color who are working with a white clinician. This is a direct quote from their research. The majority believed that white therapists could not understand key aspects of their experiences and subsequently avoided broaching racial, cultural issues in therapy. However, many felt that racial differences were minimized if the therapist was compassionate, accepting, and comfortable discussing racial, ethnic, and or cultural issues. A subgroup expressed positive expectancies of racial mismatch and perceived disadvantages associated with racial matching. Results suggest that participants' constructions of race are multidimensional and support recommendations that therapists acquire skills for addressing racial perceptions that may impact the therapy relationship. Tell me your reactions to that.
3: I, For me, I was just going back, I guess, what, this might have been me disassociating, but, but um, really going back to when I was working in Oxnard um, at a point where um, it was a new facility and there was you know, there hadn't been mental health in that area. It was primary, p- primarily black, uh, area. And, um, I had about, a I had a 30 person caseload of individual therapy through the week where it was just con and it wasn't like, It wasn't small issues it was you know people had lost family members through through gang violence there was um you know racial trauma there was sexual trauma there were all these very severe cases and it was a lot of the conversations where i've never had a a black therapist or someone that i didn't have to explain everything to i didn't have to go through all those other things that yes they're just a part of my they're a part of my day-to-day and this is the first time I've been able to just talk about what I'm actually coming in here to talk about right now, um, and and for me that was it was kind of heartbreaking, and and also. You know i think about that on a regular basis because it's like how many people go into therapy and they don't get to talk about what they really need to talk about um, they end up being that one black client that okay i'm going in to educate my therapist i'm going in and i have to hold the weight of you know of my culture on my back when i walk in there um and and just being able to dismantle that of like they don't need to, they shouldn't need to educate the therapist Um, it, there needs to be that place where they feel that, okay, when I go in, this is where I can talk about what I need to talk about, what, what is coming up for me right here, right now. Um, and I think that that's something that that's been lost until this point. Again, we're, we're at this paradigm shift where everybody is really exploring what's going on in the culture and how do we change? How do we shift? And, you know, as therapists, we're supposed to be spearheading a lot of that. Um, how do we change the minds? how do we change the culture? Um, and how do we we create those spaces for people to feel that they can just be um, is really important right now.
1: I would imagine if I were um, a white clinician, I may feel like damn if I do damn if I don't, right And I can get how sometimes I think that can be the feeling. So when I heard that, what you read, Beth and when I was listening to you, LJ, something that came to mind is, one, I, I think sometimes white clinicians, people get stuck in these false equivocations, right? Oh, I know what you're going through. No, you don't. However, what I find is very helpful is when someone comes to you with a scenario, a situation, or an event, right? Helping that person go underneath. What's the feeling that's underneath there? So they're presenting anger, but anger is secondary, right? What's underneath there? Is it rejection? Is it disappointment, right? Is it betrayal? That's where you can connect with a person. So I think what's happening is people are trying to, why clinicians are trying to connect on the event. They're trying to find an equivalent event, you know, to help me say, no, I know what that experience is like. Stop. Because that is what puts up the fences. That's what makes people say, no, you don't. However, connect beneath the surface. Let's connect on betrayal. You don't even need to tell your story. Ah, I'm wondering. Get a feelings wheel. Help people expand their vocabulary from mad, sad, happy, right? Once you tease that out, then we can say, oh, I know that when, when I experience betrayal, I usually feel it right in my gut. It's almost like a black color. It feels like a boulder, right? Give it, give it depth. And then where do you feel that in your body? Then you can connect around betrayal, rejection, fear, all of those things. So there is a common ground. I'm just afraid that clinicians who are non, um, and non-marginalized communities are trying to get cred Right. By connecting on the top of this with here is a similar situation when we don't even need to be spending that much time there. Validate the experience. Don't dismiss it. But then let's go underneath because that's what's plaguing. And these are human emotions. These are human experiences. So there are plenty of places to connect with your clients of color. But if you're trying to do it in the situationships that you find yourself, this system doesn't allow for that. But underneath, those, that is where we can connect. So I am highly, when I hear that statistic in that study, I hear that those clinicians or that clinician was trying to connect on the surface and they were missing it, missing it big time. The clients didn't feel seen, heard and validated. But if we come underneath, I that's where you can connect with your clients and you can say, hey, here are some human experiences that we can kind of, that we can vibe off of, that we can talk about that pain and how to heal that pain. And I think that's going to be very important as people move forward to change the trajectory of how things are going.
0: As you're talking about this, there is that part, I think, of what you're saying of like where... Um, non-marginalized clinicians are completely missing the mark, and it's further damaging um, whatever rapport may have been there or may not even have been established yet. And the other thing that I hear also, and and you, you both spoke to this as well, that when the therapist was compassionate, accepting, and comfortable discussing racial, ethnic, or cultural issues, um, that these differences were minimized. What we're talking about here is such a fundamental part of therapy. Can we be a real human being, a real loving, flawed human being in the room with our own experiences and show up authentically and empathetically for that person? And, and going back to really just summing up a lot of what you've said is like, we as as majority clinicians, then need to take the responsibility to do the work outside of session, so that we're not basically wasting somebody's time to do the education when they're paying us to help them. And we're using that as an opportunity to educate ourselves. Um, And that we need to do the work ourselves to understand how our whiteness is part of how we operate in the world and how that may impact somebody else
2: in therapy and affect safety? I believe that's, that's just a part of being human, just the, the basic fundamental uh, of being. I, I remember when um, I had my first um, transitioning high school student and um, her family was just getting the understanding of, of changing the pronoun and not something I'm familiar with. But because I wasn't familiar, that wasn't a reason or an excuse for my for me not to be present. And so I was transparent. And I said, because I didn't know how to have this conversation, I did my research. You know, I took a course, you know, um, through American Counseling Association just to to see what is the correct pronoun like what and and that that made the connection. And so in and me being vulnerable and just explaining that I've never been here before and the parents, they're going through a grieving process. So if that is difficult for you with whom the child lives within your household, it, it will be difficult for me being her counselor. But we're going to walk through this together. And I think if you Say that you're going to be a part of that journey. That is what I'm saying to clinicians. Be a part of that journey with them. Even if you don't understand, say you don't understand. It's really OK. You know, but I'd much rather you be transparent than, than try to answer things that you don't have the capacity to answer. And I think that that creates the environment of safety you know, and trust, and it establishes a connection, because you're really getting to know me. And a person can respect that a lot more than you trying to fix it, or say, I understand, when you can't possibly understand what it means to be black in America, you don't know, because you haven't had those experiences. And that's okay.
0: LJ, I can see you nodding. Do you have anything you want to
3: add? Being able to be human in the room and acknowledging what we don't know. I mean, if we could all do that, it would be a better place, right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
0: um, I know that we could probably sit and discuss this topic for hours and still barely feel like we have covered anything at all. Um, I want to... I guess, begin closing this conversation and kind of do a quick wrap up of what we've talked about. So we've talked about some of the disparities in mental health treatment and working with different populations, particularly with Black and African American individuals in therapy. We've talked about trauma and its place in in the lived experience, but also in the therapy room. And come come now to this ending spot of here's where what we do as therapists. Here's what we need to do. We need to do the work outside of session. We need to be aware of ourselves and how we are either contributing um, to this trauma or helping to work through it. Um, There is so much more to be said on this topic. I would like to invite each of you as we close to share about yourselves again, about your practice, how people c- can get in touch with you. All three of you, um, thank you for joining us again and being willing to have this conversation that is, is such a difficult and painful one to have. Um, so, Lashonda, why don't we start with you? How can how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So my website is
1: www.thelaborsoflove.com So I am a clinician, but I do a lot of training corporations, governments, schools, nonprofits, you name it, helping people understand trauma and how to be trauma responsive. Trauma informed just means you know it exists. It doesn't mean you know how to actually engage with it. So uh, any inquiries, my website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. Um, I do have a podcast, The Labors of Love podcast, anywhere that you get your podcast.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, LaShonda. And how about for you, LJ Lumpkin? Uh, how can people get in touch with you?
3: Um, so, I can be reached through ljlumpkin3 at gmail.com through email. Uh, my company is Nomad Healing Practices. So, um, the website is coming. It's uh, being worked on as we speak. And um, there's um, on Instagram every Monday, I do Mindful Mondays where they're five-minute um, clips of just talking about mindfulness practices. Uh, you can find that at um, Nomad. And um, LinkedIn, I'm also on there as well, where you can also find the Mindful Mondays um, on LJ Lumpkin. And um, I do workshops on anxiety stress reduction in companies, corp- um, different, um, different agencies, as well as um, just uh, individual therapy, coaching, counseling. Um, shout at me.
0: <laughs> and how about for you, uh, Dr. Tiffany Creighton?
2: Well, my realness is still under construction. So um, thanks to COVID, I've, um, I am in the process of getting a podcast together, it will be um, six degrees of separation. Um, But it's, that's developing. And um, so the only way I guess you can really get in contact with me is my email right now. Um, But be on the lookout. Uh, My email address is live To the number two, underscore inspire at yahoo.com.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Creighton. So with the limited time we have left, I want to let our listeners know we will be compiling a list of resources. Um, I'll be working with our expert panelists here to put those together for you, and they will be on the website. We'll talk about some of the resources um, that we mentioned today. And also I will ask them to add others on their recommended reading, recommended videos, things like that, so that we can further work to educate ourselves and make ourselves as culturally humble as we can be um thank you very much to the three of you this has been an eye-opening and really lovely experience we are grateful for your work and grateful for you taking some time to share your expertise on something that is so very personal thank you thank you
2: thank you for having this -hmm.
1: forum.
0: you've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by clearly clinical If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of Continuing Ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.